You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was Being Human in a Fragmenting World. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabrieconference.com. Today's episode features a lecture by Philip Johnston. Philip lives in Nashville now, but is a former worker at both the branches of Labrie in Southboro and in England. This lecture is called Bodies with Meaning, Christianity's Liberating Sex Ethic. We are going to talk about sex today. And before we do, I want to make two caveats. You see them on your handout. And I call them warding off bad ideas and recognizing hypocrisy. And I want to do these quick so we can get into the meat, but I don't want to talk about this topic without saying these things. The historic Christian sexual ethic, as our title says, is designed to liberate people, but it has often been used to heap shame on people. There are a variety of deeply unchristian ideas about sex that float around um, the church. So maybe if, if you feel comfortable, raise your hand if you've heard any of these ideas. Uh, one is sex is inherently dirty and dangerous. One of them. Sexual orientation is always a matter of choice. Gay people choose to be gay, which makes them more rebellious sinners than people who don't choose that. Yeah. Female modesty is more important than male self-control. Okay. Sexual purity is essential for unmarried people, but less of an issue for married people. Okay. Sex is the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. Okay. So I want to flag all of these ideas and say that they are not Christian ideas. They are deeply unchristian. And they all represent a betrayal of the Bible's teaching on sexuality. So if you've been hurt or scarred by some of these teachings, please know that I am not here to advocate for them. And that I'm I'm here to try to promote something better. I want to get that out of the way. So that is warding off bad ideas. The second thing is recognizing hypocrisy. Conservative and evangelical Christians in America have been full of hypocrisy on sexual matters. This became particularly clear, crystal clear really, when some of the loudest Christian proponents of family values in a generation past gave their full political backing to Donald Trump for the presidency. I'm saying nothing about his politics but just to recognize that he is a man who is unrepentant in his sexual behavior that goes against Christian teaching. So uh, the values voter contingent backed him. And if you grew up in a Christian atmosphere where some of the bad ideas about sex that I just mentioned um, were promoted, and you saw Christian people around you who told you those ideas, give their backing to Donald Trump, you are right to be confused. 
Most of them owe Bill Clinton a big apology. Um, you, were, you were told that character counts, but then suddenly it didn't. And that is reason to be confused. Um, so if you find yourself in this place, I'm honored that you still chose to show up to this workshop. And I thank you for that. I'm going to try to present the historic Christian sexual teaching with clarity and conviction because I really do believe that it's good news. And I hope I can do this through a lens that might be a bit new to you. So that's my hope for this morning. I just wanted to get those two things out of the way. So this talk is called Bodies with Meaning, Christianity's Liberating Sexual Ethics. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or you're not religious at all, that subtitle probably strikes you a bit strange. Christianity's Liberating Sex Ethic. And of course it does. Because when judged by popular standards, Christians believe crazy and even offensive things about sexuality. By holding to the conviction that the one proper place for sexual intimacy is the exclusive covenanted marriage of a man and a woman, Christians find themselves in a place of profound cultural unacceptability. And this is embarrassing. For some Christians... The pressure of feeling on the outside of the culture, and even potentially painted as a bigot, has been enough to make them leave the faith altogether. Just chuck it out and go. Does anyone know anyone who's, who's fit the situation? Others have attempted to revise the historic teaching while still keeping the Christian label. This is the more progressive contingent. One of the mo more prominent and popular voices in this camp is a woman named Nadia Boltz-Weber, who is a Lutheran minister in Colorado, in Denver, Colorado, and her book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, came out earlier this year um, and received glowing accolades from influential writers like Father Richard Rohr, Glennon Doyle, Sarah Bessie, and the late Rachel Held Evans when it was released um, earlier this year. And she writes in her book, talking about people, yeah, talking about the historic Christian teaching. I'm quoting her here. She says, It's time for us to grab some matches and haul our antiquated and harmless ideas about sex and bodies and gender into the yard. I'm saying, let's burn it the fuck down and start over because it's time. Unquote. So there are these options of either leaving the faith or revising the faith that are appealing to many people as a way of dealing with the discomfort that they feel. But where does this discomfort come from? Why do we experience it? Well, our culture has been deeply shaped by Christianity, and because of this, Western Christians are not accustomed to feeling tension with their neighbors on moral issues, particularly around sexuality. For over a millennium, it was both assumed and accepted, even if hypocritically, that marriage was the only place for sex. But the sexual revolution of the 20th century brought a decisive shift in the cultural code around sexuality. And I want to camp out on this idea of cultural codes this morning. Every culture has a code in place when it comes to sexuality. Every culture. And it's a set of ideas and rules that govern people's sex lives. This code is not posted anywhere official. You can't go to the library and find it. If an outsider wants to learn the code, they'll have to watch how people live their lives. They'll have to listen to the stories they tell. 
they'll have to observe the art that they produce. And though every cultural code is vulnerable to shifts over time, the code is always in place somehow, governing people's thoughts and actions. And if you transgress the code, public opinion will be set against you, and you could find yourself in a deeply shameful position. This has been true throughout history, no matter what the code has been. If you transgress it, you're going to find yourself in a place of shame. So if you had to take a stab at what our cultural code around sexuality is here in 2019, what would you say it is? What rules or ideas govern people's sexual practice? Real question. Mutual consent. Mutual consent, yeah. Great. Don't hurt anybody. Um, Harm. Don't harm anybody, yeah. Whatever is right for you. Whatever is right for you. So you, you decide what is right sexual behavior, provided you don't hurt anyone and there's consent. That's pretty much what we, what we have. Um, a formula that a guy named John Tyson in New York City uses that I think is very helpful is desire plus consent equals freedom. Desire plus consent equals freedom. And more specifically, quoting from Nadia Bowles Weber's book, she says, unless your sexual desires are for minors or animals, or your sexual choices are hurting you or those you love, you act on them with any sexual partner who consents. That's essentially the, the code that many of the progressive voices are, are putting forth. Desire plus consent equals freedom. Stay away from minors and animals. This is our code, and it's the product of a radical shift. As I said a few moments ago, the cultural code in the West for a long time was the historic Christian sexual ethic. And there has not been a code shift as large as the one we've experienced recently in over 2,000 years. There hasn't been a code shift this big. The last time there was a code shift was the shift from the sexual code of the Roman Empire in the first century AD, over 2,000 years ago, to what we now call traditional. And it was a revolutionary shift. When Jesus and the apostles walked the earth, there was an entirely different set of ideas and rules governing people's sex lives. And when people heard about the Christian sexual ethic for the first time, they were either completely disgusted by it, usually powerful men, or they heard it as a word of profound liberation and couldn't wait to get themselves into a Christian community, usually women, children, and prostitutes. So during our time together, I want us to consider how the Christian sexual ethic addresses cultural codes around sexuality. And in order to do this, I want us to look at the pre-Christian code, the Christian code, in scare quotes, and then our post-Christian code. So let's just jump in. One, the pre-Christian code, bodies have status or status. I lived in England so long, you might hear status. To understand the pre-Christian code, this is during the time of Jesus and the apostles, and mostly Gentiles. Jews had their own ideas drawn from the Old Testament. But this is the Gentile world, people who Paul would have preached to. To understand what they believed about sex, you have to see every person's body as classified by the status of either honor or shame. And to picture this, I want you to think of a light switch with two settings. Honor, up, on, shame, down. 
if you are switched to honor, then your body was protected by law from sexual violation. This was the case for freeborn Roman citizens who abided by the social code. The status of their bodies and the bodies of their wife and children were one of honor. But if your switch was set to shame, put down, either by your birth or by some loss of honor on your part, there was no protection of your body by the law from any kind of sexual violation. Your body could be used sexually with impunity. And if you somehow fell into shame from a place of honor, your fall was irreversible. The switch does not go back on. So with this organizing image of the light switch in view, I want us to look at both men and women in this time period and describe what their sexual life course would have looked like. So we'll start with women. So a freeborn woman's life knew only two stages, before her wedding and after her wedding. Marriage was universal for women in that time. There was no such thing as a spinster in the ancient world. The legal marrying age at that time was, anybody want to take a guess or no? Legal, legal marrying age was around 12. And most girls married in their mid-teens to men twice their age or more. Who would a woman need to be in order for her switch to be set to honor, to stay in an honorable place? She had to preserve in herself what was called the one glory of a woman. And that was her chastity. If a married woman committed adultery, her shame switch would be flipped, and there was no going back for her. An honorable woman, though, was a virgin on her wedding day. She was chaste within her marriage, and she was a mother to legitimate offspring. And that last part was very important, because if a woman came from a wealthy and honorable family line, she had money, but if she was not fertile, she was not worth marrying. And that's about it. For women. That is what the sexual life course looked like. So let's move on to men. What was required of women uh, in regard to sexual conduct was not required of men. Shocker. <laughs> men did not have to be virgins on their wedding day. In fact, there wasn't even a natural sounding word for male virginity in the first century in either Greek or Latin. And Christianity would have to work hard to come up with one for a long time because there wasn't even a word in the vocabulary. What was required of a man? Whereas a woman had to practice chastity and be very strict about it, moderation was required of men. Pleasure was seen as a drug to the senses, so self-control was a virtue. It was paramount. And they said that excessive pleasure, especially of a sexual kind, was feminine. Women, they said, lacked the physical constitution to control their appetites. But the real man could always master his impulse. See how it's so different from the way we tend to think today? It's, it's a whole different world. But this moderation was not expected right away. It was only expected of a man after a long period of sexual experimentation and indulgence in his teens and his early, early 20s, and this was called the slippery time. 
Whereas girls were expected to throw all of their moral energy into chastity, men could not be expected to do so. And a nickname for the penis at that time was the necessity. And any restrictions on male sexual exertion in the years after puberty were just considered implausible. You're going to make a guy do that? You're nuts. He can't do that. Sexual escapades during this time were seen as totally inconsequential, so long as they stayed within the bounds of two very important rules. First, avoid sexual passivity. Masculinity is active, they said. Femininity is passive. For a man to be the passive partner in sex, as in sex with another man, that's feminine. It's undignified and weak. And it would flip your switch from honor to shame. Rule number one, avoid sexual passivity. Rule number two, avoid adultery. Young men were seen as a threat to older married women. And husbands feared that their wives would be seduced by younger men. A young man who had sex with a married woman would be punished by the law. And his switch would be flipped. So here we have to say a word about the concept of adultery in this time. And this is key to understanding because it is so different from our concept. How do we define adultery? Real question. How do we define adultery? Covenant breaking. Covenant breaking. Um, Anyone else? Basically sleeping with someone other than your spouse. In their time... Adultery was defined as sex with a woman whose switch was flipped to honor, which meant another man's wife or a, another man's daughter, a freeborn virgin. This was true for both unmarried men and married men. So a married man could have sex with a woman other than his wife, but it was only adultery if her switch was flipped to honor. It was only adultery if her switch was flipped to honor. The shameful thing about adultery in this world was not covenant breaking. That was not, an e- that was not even on the table. The shameful thing was that it violated a woman's honor, which amounted to a crime against who? Her husband. Or her father. Yeah. So adultery was defined as an act, not an act of covenant breaking, but an act of theft. Uh, violation of another man's legitimate control of his wife or his daughter's sexuality. So, in sum, the married adulterer does not violate his marriage bond, he violates another man's honor and his own sense of self-control and moderation. You couldn't be moderate enough to just go have sex with a prostitute? What kind of man are you? So, what's a young guy to do? This is where the sexual ethics of the first century take a much darker turn. As a hedge against adultery, slaves, prostitutes, and even young boys were a public and permitted sexual resource for both single men and married men. And we need to be clear about this. For men, sex with slaves, prostitutes, and young boys was tolerated, encouraged, and affirmed as a way of preventing adultery. This is not our world. This is a totally different code. So first, slaves. The world expert on this matter is a professor at the University of Oklahoma, a classicist named Kyle Harper. He's written the, um, a, his doctorate was on slavery in late antiquity, 
And he's written the book on which I'm dependent this morning. It's called From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexuality in Late Antiquity. It's an amazing book. Um, And you can find a reference to it on the back. So he's an expert on slavery. And he describes slaves in the High Roman Empire as fungible sex objects. And says that they played something like the part that masturbation has played in most cultures. So consider the advice of the Roman poet Ovid. He said this, likely to a young man, or or an older man. If your loins are swollen, and there's some home-born slave boy or girl around where you can quickly stick it, would you rather burst with tension? Not I. I like an easy lay. So the slave girl's virginity or chastity was a non-issue. As for slave boys, we hear of wealthy masters who would keep slave boys in the house until their first beard, and then they would send them outside the house into the fields to work. Wealthy households in the Roman Empire had slaves to serve their needs, and slaves were often used for the sexual gratification of their masters. But what if you couldn't afford them? What if you couldn't afford slaves? This is where prostitution came in. In the mind of the first century person, Prostitution prevented adultery. Prostitutes were a public good. They were legal, taxed, aimed at the lower classes, and as cheap as a loaf of bread. In their view, the prostitute's body acted as a safety valve for male lust. Having sex with a prostitute was not seen as shameful for a man, and it certainly didn't violate the prostitute. After all, her switch was set to shame already, and she had no dignity that could be taken away because her switch was already down. One philosopher at the time described prostitutes in the brothel as hapless women or children captured in war or else purchased with money. And often in the ancient world, baby girls who were not wanted by their parents at birth were left out in the elements to die. This was called exposure. And brothel keepers would find these girls They would raise them in their establishments, and these girls would work in in their establishments. Hapless women or children. And Harper notes, he says, The commodification of sex was carried out with all the ruthless efficiency of an industrial operation. The unfree body bearing the pressures of insatiable market demand. He also said that in the, pro- in, in the brothel, the prostitute's body became like a corpse. So that is prostitution. There was yet another way for a man to avoid adultery, and that was by having sex with young boys, particularly slave boys. Young boys in this time were a particular object of erotic attraction. One farcical tale imagined a trip to the Isle of the Blessed, And that was a place where all wives were shared in common without jealousy, and all boys submitted to their male pursuers without resistance. Sexual use of children was widely tolerated in the Roman Empire and even celebrated lyrically by pagan poets as a far better sexual experience than with women. Remember the poet Ovid's advice. He says, if your loins are swollen and there's some home-born slave boy or girl around, find your satisfaction there. And here's what you need to understand. To do so was a perfectly moral choice. It was a moral choice. 
because it prevented adultery. That's the power of codes that shift over time. So I've described briefly and horrifically um, this code. Um, Does anybody have any questions about it? Usually some pop up. Um, Any just questions about this time? Yeah. It it did fall, but slavery was and prostitution was an extremely successful business. But yeah, it did it did eventually collapse. Yeah. Could a slave girl ever switch to honor by marrying? No one would marry her and switch her to honor, right? Um, Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if a freeborn person would marry. A slave girl, but as the honor of slaves was very much determined by their masters. So if you were a kind master, you could give honor to your slave. If you were an unkind master, you didn't, and they were dishonorable. You could abuse them. All these things. So it was really the master's choice, which is why um, Paul's letter to uh, the letter of Philemon is particularly telling. Because Paul is essentially calling on Philemon to give Onesimus honor and to receive him. And he was a slave. He was a slave. Yeah. So, yeah. So, freeborn, freeborn young boys, yeah. it was kind of like there was a point where they became men and sex became shameful for them. They engaged with it with another man. But nothing happens to their honor if a man... Okay, yeah, so a a, a guy can be the active partner and not lose his, um, not lose his honor. He just can't be the passive partner. Okay. So as long as he's acting, he he can keep his honor if it's with a young boy. It was complicated with um, other men. But the young boy does not lose honor. Yes, he does. Yeah, a young boy. A young boy in this situation, his honor is gone forever, because he's been the passive partner in a sexual act which is feminine and undignified. So you're saying passivity is shameful. Passivity for men is shameful. That's that's the code. Yeah. So are these codes wanted in the time period? to the Romans, I guess. I'm curious about. Other parts of the world, it the same everywhere. I'm not sure. This was this is late antiquity in the Roman Empire. So, and I only covered this area because it's the the area that the Bible speaks into the New Testament. Yeah. I know you're going to describe the shift here, but it seems like some of those things, these ideas, kind of carried on even after the Christian era. And you watch like some, you know, people expect men to kind of get a pass even. Yeah. Later, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think they've carried on in, in some ways. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very much the attitude towards slaves it, it remains there. Yeah. No wonder Thomas Jefferson liked to cut parts out of his Bible. Paul's condemnation of male and male sexuality yeah. in Romans one would there have been? Any concept of mutually consensual same gender sex in this world, or should we understand that entirely in terms of this? Let's come back to that at the end after I talk about Paul. So I'm not dodging, I want you to ask that at the end. Okay. Okay.
Let's move on to the Christian code. I put it in quotation marks. And that is that bodies don't have status, but they have meaning. If you were to approach the city of Corinth in the year A.D. 51, the first thing you would have seen even before you entered the city was a long and steep cliff face overlooking the sea. And perched on top of the highest peak of that summit, as if keeping watch over the city itself, was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. Corinth was a hub of sensuality, and it was a place where the sexual code that we just described would have been firmly in place. So the Apostle Paul approached Corinth in AD 51, and it was an approach that he made, he said, in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Nevertheless, he did successfully plant a Christian church there. Around six years later, he sent the church a letter to deal with some internal crises they were having, some of a sexual nature. We know this, this letter as what? First Corinthians. And it's one of the primary places in the New Testament where Christian sexual ethics are grounded. So I want to just look at a few chunks of First Corinthians and keep this world that we've been talking about in your mind as we talk about it. So first, A, the problem of porneia. We're going to look at the presenting issue. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, porneia, among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. This was the presenting issue, and it was a big, fat deal. Why? It messed with the code. It messed with the cultural code at the time and with what Paul had taught the Corinthians about sex. A certain man in this church congregation was in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife and the church didn't seem to care about it. We do not know what happened to this man's father, if he was dead or if he was divorced, we don't know. But what we do know is that this behavior was forbidden by all ancient codes, both Jewish and pagan. And because family was such a high value, it was a heinous thing for a father and his son to cohabit with the same woman at any point. And it was seen as incest. But for some reason, these Corinthian Christians were looking at this situation with a blind eye. And Paul says that they were even boasting about it. So it was bringing, even outsiders were looking at them and seeing this and they were like, we thought you had your own code, but you are you were messing with our code too. But these people didn't seem to care. But Paul does. And he labels what's going on as uh, porneia in Greek. This is the word where we get pornography, of course. So B, moving porneia from shame to sin. One of Paul's difficulties in writing to the Corinthians was that he had to simultaneously address two very different responses to sexual conduct from people in the congregation. Imagine, if you can, a church that has people who disagree about things. Um, there was there was one faction who said things like all things are lawful for me that was one small group that met on Wednesdays Um, but then there was a more ascetic faction meeting on Thursdays who, who said things like it is best for a man never to touch a woman and these people are in the same church you can imagine that they had some issues Um, And so Paul hears both of these things and he's trying to sketch a middle way for them to kind of resolve their issues. 
So this next section of the text we're going to look at begins with Paul quoting two slogans used by the more libertine wing of the Corinthian church, the Wednesday night group. (laughs) They say things like, all things are lawful for me, and food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. This second slogan about food and stomachs shows that these people, this libertine faction, had a very low regard for the human body. And they believed that God would eventually destroy it. And their logic was, if God is going to destroy the body, why does it matter what we do with it now? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God's going to do away with both, so do anything you want. And this is how Paul responds to them. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, porneia, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality, porneon. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person, pornuon, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That is a stunning text. There is so much to unpack, but the key thing to notice is that is his use of the word porneia that was used before. Paul uses this word earlier to describe incest, remember, in the situation with the guy with his father's wife? Here he uses it to describe sex with prostitutes. Same exact word. For Paul, both of these acts can be described with the word porneia. They are both equally wrong. Think back briefly to our survey of sexuality in this time. Incest, sleeping with your father's wife, would have been an utterly shameful act in that culture. It would have flipped the switch from honor to shame for both partners forever. But a man having sex with prostitutes or slaves or children, no no big deal. No problem. It's what you do when your loins swell. Nothing happens to the honor-shame switch. But Paul sketches a revolutionary new sexual ethic for these Christians. He says that both incest and going to a prostitute are porneia. And that porneia itself is not just shameful, it is sin. New concept. This is where Paul drops a bomb on the first century audience and introduces them to something entirely new. He has changed the language surrounding sexual acts from talk of shame to talk of sin. And this was totally new. You have to understand this, especially if you grew up in the church. There was a time that this was totally new. Shame. 
is a social concept. It's rooted in human emotion and vulnerable to shifts in cultural codes. Under our cultural code, if a person has a sexual desire for children, that is shameful. Back then, it's not. Codes change. But sin is a theological concept. It pertains to a person's relationship to God and to the world he has made. And by using this language, Paul takes sexual conduct and he raises it above cultural code. And he puts it on an entirely new plane. And he provides an entirely new way of thinking about sex. The person who's involved in porneia doesn't merely fall into shame. They fall into sin in the eyes of God. And they are ultimately accountable to him. What does this mean? Well, it means that the freeborn man in the Christian community no longer has a right to satisfy his sexual urges with a young boy, a prostitute, or a slave. It also means that a slave in the Christian household no longer has to fear being sexually violated by her master if he is living according to his faith. It means that within the Christian community, the prostitute has found a place where she will not be subjected to the violent sexual abuse of her body if people are living by their faith. It means that when she brings her children into the Christian assembly, she does not have to worry about their sexual violation, which would have been common in the brothel. If your honor-shame switch is set to shame, these fledgling communities, if they are living according to the gospel proclaimed by Jesus and Paul, they are the Roman Empire's one safe haven from sexual abuse. No wonder slaves and women flocked to them. That was the difference that the Christian teaching made in this world. We can see how the stark differences between the early Christians and the culture around them. We can see how there were differences. But I want to explore Paul's logic here. Why do these bodily matters matter so much for the Christian community? And here we arrive at a core teaching about, uh, of Christianity about the nature of the human body. Its eternal destiny and its sacramental nature. just want to run through those real quick. So first, it's eternal destiny. Along with Jews, Christians believe that every person's body is inherently good because all human beings bear the image of God. That is direct from Genesis 1. If you did not hear that growing up in the church, they were wrong. And they, yeah, didn't read Genesis. Um, the body is good. That's basic biblical teaching. But, and that's Jewish teaching. But Christians go further. At the heart of the gospel, the good news, is the claim that God, the, the God of Israel, the supreme and ultimate being, the infinite source of life and light, took on human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. God himself took on a human body and became complete in all the parts of a man, as Augustine said. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, by conquering the forces of sin and death in his own bodily resurrection from the dead, 
has provided a way for the human body, our human bodies, to become immortal. Filled for all eternity with the majesty and splendor of God's beauty and power. Here is Paul's logic in the passage we read. Just as Jesus rose from the dead in his human body, so those who believe in him will be raised from the dead by the same power. Because they have been united to him in his deathless life by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has made the destiny of his body and our body one and the same. Immortality, because we are united to him. This means that moral life for the Christian is not simply about following Jesus in what he said and what he did, although it is very much so. But it is also about living in union with him, miraculously sharing in his life and identity. Not just imitating him, but living in union with him and sharing in his life and identity. And this is what Paul means when he says the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Your bodies are members of Christ, so glorify God in your body, Paul says. Because Christians have been united to Jesus Christ, the way we use the sexual capabilities of our bodies is of great importance to God. We are the body of Christ on earth if we have been united to Jesus. That is what we are in some mysterious reality. We are him walking around. So that's the first thing, the eternal destiny of the human body. And the second thing is its sacramental nature. So a sacrament in churchy language is a visible sign of an invisible grace. Um, So baptism is water poured on someone's head or someone immersed in water. And And it signifies, it points toward the washing of renewal of the Holy Spirit, among other things. Uh, Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is bread and wine that points beyond itself to the body and the blood of Christ shed for us. Human bodies are similar. They, are, and they have a sacramental meaning. They, they are signposts that point beyond themselves to something else. So, God has created human beings, male and female. Paul quotes from the Genesis account in this passage where Adam is presented to Eve. And it says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Um, he goes back to the Bible for the beginning. He goes back to the Bible as his authoritative source for the meaning of sexuality. Jesus does the same in the Gospels. If you read the Genesis account of creation, you will see how God gives life to the world by separating and naming complementary yet distinct pairs of things. Sun and moon. Morning and evening. Day and night. Plants and animals. Sea and dry land. This is the pattern of creation. The pattern of creation is irreducibly two. And these complementary differences constitute what is necessary for fruitfulness. And fruitfulness is God's created design for the world. And this is the deep meaning of man and woman. 
a complementary yet distinct pair whose union is ordered toward fruitfulness. This fruit is relational. It looks like intimacy, closeness, and trust. But this fruit is also organic. We have babies. The fruit is relational and organic. It is both unitive and procreative, as theologians put it. Mere physical contact, holding hands and hugging, does not unite people in this way. Uh, You might have been told that in youth group, but it, it doesn't. But sexual union does unite a man and a woman in this way. And all this, God says, is good. But it is not just good. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul quotes from the Genesis account and goes even further. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you see the sacramental thing? Here's man and woman in their union. But it it points beyond itself to something greater, to Christ and the church. So the Bible constantly uses marriage as a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find it all over the place. God is the divine husband, and his people are the bride. God's love, his desire, leads him to total commitment to his people, so much so that Jesus was willing to die in order to reunite us with God. This is the depth of God's pledge of fidelity toward his people. It shows itself in total commitment. Jesus is the divine husband. The church is his bride. And our union with him brings forth the fruit of peace in our hearts. And it brings forth the fruit of the Spirit into the world. Our union with Jesus by the Holy Spirit is a fruitful union. When God designed human sexuality, he put his stamp on it as something created to mirror his own faithfulness to that which is other from him, but created for union with him. Male and female are other. They are different from one another. But they are created for union with one another. The ecstasy that can come from this union is but a shadow of the ecstasy of what it would be like to be united with God for all eternity. The pleasure of orgasm is meant to propel us in longing for something deeper than orgasm, which is eternal union with the triune God. God made us sexual beings in order to tell us something about himself. He has written into our bodies a way of mirroring his own faithful love. He's written that into our bodies. And because of this, the sexual union of male and female has been designed by God to go along with the total commitment of one's whole life to the other. This is what the covenant of marriage does. In marriage, a husband and wife commit both body and soul to one another in a relationship of whole person fidelity until death. Sex outside of marriage, outside of this context offers intimacy of body without commitment of soul. And in so doing, it rips apart violently something that God designed to be put together. It tells a lie about the nature and character of God who has made our bodies 
to enact a parable of his love. The Christian confession is that bodies have meaning. As humans, we were never meant to offer sexual intimacy to another person without commitment of our soul to them as well. And when we seek sexual intimacy of body without valid commitment of soul, it doesn't have to happen, but the odds become high that we will begin using other people and start viewing sex as a way to dominate and control others for our own pleasure. And here we arrive back at our own day. Number three, the, post, the post-Christian code. We mentioned earlier our current formula of desire plus consent equals freedom. Another way of putting this in relationship to the body and its sexual capacity is that bodies have possibility. If you have the desire and can find someone who consents to that desire, anything is possible. Now, if you want to read a kind of State of the Union report on sex in our current culture under this code, you should pick up the October 2018 issue of the Atlantic Monthly and read Kate Julian's story called The Sex Recession. I'm not going to point you to a Christian book or anything like that. Just pick up the Atlantic from October of last year. She says in the first lines of her article, These should be boom times for sex. But, she says, fewer and fewer Americans believe that sex before marriage is wrong. HIV diagnoses are at a low. Birth control is easily available. And hookups are just a swipe away on your phone. Even so, American teenagers and young adults are having less sex. Teen pregnancy rates are low. High schoolers are having less sex than in the 90s. Same is true for Gen Xers and boomers. And Kate Julian calls this the sex recession. And she lists five trends that contribute to it. And I'm just going to run through these five real quick. One is sex for one. Wealthy countries around the world are, all, are reporting sex delays and declines. At the top of the list is, do you know which where's the top of the list? Japan. Where a whole new vocabulary, a whole new vocabulary for a new code, really, has been invented to describe men who have celibacy syndrome. These men are referred to as herbivores, shut-ins, and obsessive fans, particularly of anime and manga. The prospect of intercourse to them has made another new word, which is tiresome, and it makes masturbation to pornography their primary sexual outlet. There are even shops in Japan where a man can do this while a real woman watches, and they pay to have that happen. We see similar trends regarding masturbation in America. From 1992 to 2014, the share of American men who reported masturbating in a given week doubled to 54%, and the share of women more than tripled to 26%. In 2014, 43% of men said they'd watched porn in the last week. So that is where we are there, sex for one. The second is hookup culture and helicopter parents. You might not see how those come together. (laughs) Romantic relationships are growing less common among teenagers. This shift coincides with American parents' increased anxiety about their children's educational and economic prospects. In short, parents keep kids too busy for them to develop romantic relationships, 
which might diminish their focus on their career pathway, which they should ideally start choosing in middle school nowadays. <laughs> One student who went to college after this put it like this. She said, we hook up because we have no social skills. We have no social skills because we hook up. Three, the Tinder mirage. People who don't use dating, dating apps uh, see them as a quick way to find casual sex. But apps like Tinder, Julian points out, rarely lead to a match and photogenic people tend to have the best success. Duh. <laughs> uh, Julian found that many people using these apps use it more like a game than anything, than anything else. And it's a game in which your match counts as ego and ego boost points. If someone approves of you, someone swipes you, you feel pretty good about that. So plus, as sexual assault and harassment continue to be reckoned with in our culture, the perception that a man asking a woman out counts as sexual harassment is growing. So if dating apps don't work unless you're hot, and asking someone out could count as assault, why not stay home and watch pornography? That's what's happening in many people's minds. Four, bad sex, painfully bad. Data suggests that young people today are more likely to engage in sexual behaviors prevalent in pornography things that they've seen there. Um, and Julian said, in my interviews with young women, I heard too many iterations to count of, he did something that I didn't like that I later learned was a staple in pornography. And one widely cited example is choking, being choked. Many women she interviewed felt pressure to emulate pornography actresses during sex. Both of these factors combined often in a result of profound physical pain and psychological pain as well. Finally, inhibition. There is a rising trend of young people being digitally nonchalant, she says, when it comes to sex, but prudish in person. And the reason is that a large and growing body of research reports that for both men and women, social media use is correlated with body dissatisfaction. And a major Dutch study found that young, among men, frequency of pornography viewing was associated with concern about penis size. Another study showed that positive body image is linked to having better sex. So, if you don't feel comfortable in your own body, through what you've seen in social media and pornography about what a body should look like, you, things become complicated. And you might just decide not to seek it out at all. Each of these areas that Julian points out, masturbation to pornography, a casual hookup, seeing people's dating profiles as pawns in a dating game, choking your sexual partner, all of these reveal a desire to consume another person, to subordinate their humanity to the terms of your satisfaction. And this is inhuman. But this is also the world we live in. Feeling that you have been reduced in this way can only bring shame. Anxiety that you do not live up to another person's consumption standards can only bring shame. And though the dynamics are no doubt different in the, in the first, than in the first century world that we talked about, many people in our day stand in need of something to do with the shame that they feel. 
But it can be embarrassing to speak this shame aloud because of how often we are constantly told that our code is working. Desire plus consent equals freedom. Desire plus consent equals freedom. This is what it means to be a rational person in 2019. So an article in Vanity Fair back in 2015 interviewed a swath of Tinder users to find out about their experiences using the app. And here's what one group of girls said. She said, uh, one of them, it's a contest to see who cares less. And guys win a lot at caring less. <laughs> Second, sex should stem from emotional intimacy, and the, it's the opposite with us right now, and I think it really is kind of destroying females' self-images. Next girl says, it's body first, personality second. Next one, honestly, I feel like the body doesn't even matter to them, as long as you're willing. It's that bad, she says. And then the final one, but... If you say any of this out loud, it's like you're weak. You're not independent. You somehow missed the whole memo about third wave feminism. You're weak. You're not independent enough. You've missed the memo about what a woman should be. How does the Christian sexual ethic address this? These are the voices of people who are experiencing deep shame. They have become something in the eyes of people that is less than human. And the Apostle Paul would say that their shame is twofold. It is objective shame because they have sinned sexually. But it is also a deeply felt subjective shame inside of them because they have been sinned against. And the web of those two kinds of shame constantly, they flow in and out of one another from the things we've done and the things that have been done to us and the shame that is caused by them. In his letter to the Corinthians that we looked at, Paul made a list of people who fit this description, guilty of sin before God and viewed as shameful by their culture. And he said this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, pornoi, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, basically nobody, um, <laughs> will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in these verses, Paul makes a list of things that in the surrounding Greco-Roman culture that we talk about would have flipped a person's shame, shame switch from, shame, from honor to shame. In that culture, the fall into shame was irreversible. There was no going back to a place of honor after the darkness of shame descended upon your body. There was no going back. You were a non-being in the eyes of society. But something happens to shame within the Christian community. Here Paul insists that somehow, because of what Jesus has done, each person who rises from the waters of baptism has been cleansed, set apart, and justified before the ultimate authority in the universe. Jesus Christ, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light. 
becoming a part of the Christian community gave a person the assurance that in the eyes of God and in the eyes of this community, the impossible had taken place. The switch was flipped from shame to honor. Clothed in Christ, you have been given an unspeakable dignity available nowhere else and that no one can take away from you. Wesley Hill, um, who is a celibate gay Christian, reviewed um, the book that I spoke about earlier by Nadia Bowles-Weber in Christianity Today. And he had some good things to say, but his, his general view was that it was missing a lot. And he said this, True shamelessness, gospel shamelessness, comes not from making peace with your present identity and activity and declaring yourself free from shame. It comes instead from hearing a word from outside yourself and beyond your own head, God's promise of free forgiveness and new life through Christ. We are incapable of declaring ourselves free from shame. Only something outside of ourselves can do that. I want to conclude um, our time together by uh, quoting from a theologian at Duke Divinity School named Norman Wiersbe. Our life is a gift. Um, It is a gift from God. Our bodies, in all of their meaning, are a gift from God. And this is what Wiersbe says. It is easy to say that life is a gift. It is another matter to understand that the acknowledgement of life as a gift entails living in the world in particular sorts of ways. If life is a gift, that means it is not our invention. It is not something we can do with as we please. As a gift, life comes with its own integrity, carrying what is sometimes called its sacred and miraculous character. To see that life is a miracle and then receive it as such We need to figure out what life is ultimately for on its own terms and then order our desires appropriately. Life is a gift. Our bodies are a gift. That is a hard word for many of us who struggle sexually, but it is a word of liberation, I am convinced. And that's what I have to share with you today. Actually, the first one's smaller. The Vanity Fair piece you referenced from 2015, do you have a title? Uh, uh, Tender Hookup Culture at the End of Dating. Tender Hookup Culture at the End of Dating. Dating. Okay. Thank you. Um, I read a summary of a study not too long ago that said that Tender Culture was actually pushing us back to some sexual ethics of a bygone era. Um, well, the thing they specifically cited was the reemergence of harem culture, that one sexually attractive male was sexually active with multiple women who may not be aware of each other, and they viewed him as a primary sexual partner, but he did not view any of them as primary. So do you, just in your research, do you think we should anticipate a sexual trajectory that returns maybe to the Roman
Philip's one of my favorite people until right now. Um, I hope not. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I think the, I think the Me Too, I think just where we are in the past year and a half, two years with the Me Too movement, and um, I think one of the gifts of that movement and what's happening in the last year is that there's obviously so much more recognition of violence and abuse against women of a sexual nature. Um, there's less shame around women speaking up and speaking out about it. There's more openness. There's more help available. We're shining a greater light on it. Um, but it's also pushing us into third wave, you know, some of the stuff with third wave feminism, which is, uh, I don't know if Nadia Boltz Weber kind of claims that. I haven't actually read her book, but she's claiming a pretty extreme version from what I understand, of sexual liberation. And so I do think there's a danger in that of, like, forget all, like, this has been so bad, forget all of this, and now women are kind of taking back some power, taking back some ownership in a way that I think is really necessary, important, and good, but where that's actually going to go. Hard to chart, and I think it, it could go a lot of different directions, some good, some less helpful. I, I among men, something like that becomes a very um, set thing. Like, and increasingly so, and becomes more stark. But increasingly, you're going to find women who, their involvement in that is only out of, um, yeah, they're not going to want to be involved in it. And in the Tinder article talks about how, if you want to be in a relationship, in the modern world, you kind of have to submit to these things. But it's not really a relationship, and none of us are really benefiting from it that much. And, yeah, it, it, it's, it's complicated. I, I don't know if a good answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had um, something to say in regards to how sexuality in general is good for single people, uh, single Christians, how the Christian sexual ethic is good for uh, singles. Um, and... Also, particularly for uh, LGBT Christians, um, I think it, it's an even bigger question of how how is I I've heard like it's good because it reminds us it points us to the deeper longing of of um, being united with Christ as well. But there is a difference I think in singleness versus marriage on. How, Obviously, there's a difference in how that plays out with sexuality, and it's much harder to see the goodness, I think. Um, about being a single Christian came from people who fit that description. Um, people who are same-sex attracted, gay or lesbian, but who are convinced that the Christian sexual ethic is right, and the historic Christian sexual ethic is right, and are going to live by it. And they, their writing is so inspirational to me. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I would not want to venture to speak into your situation without knowing you better then. Um, because I don't want to say something that comes off as easy. So I think I'd rather talk to you one on one. 
then, then do it here because I don't want to say something trite. So please come find me after we're doing this conference and we can chat about it. <laughs> yeah. From what you've spoken about um, the pre-Christian sexual code and a system in which same-sex relationships consisted, existed only in the context of social injustice and social and economic oppression. How should that color our understanding of Paul's condemnation of same-sex relationships in Romans 1? So when I spoke about those relationships, I was speaking mainly about what um, a guy could do to avoid adultery. So the pederasty stuff was one of the, the things that he it was a resource for him. There are inst- there's a lot of other record of same-sex behavior is same-sex sexual activity in the late uh, in late antiquity, and Kyle Harper gets into that in his book. And there are varying degrees of shame around it. But what what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 is not pederasty. And the main reason that we can say that is because in the um, passage here, it talks about how men and women are consumed with desire for one another. There is no record of a pederastic relationship in the ancient world in which there was that kind of mutuality. Um, where they were filled with desire for one another. Um, And there's also no record in the ancient world of female-female relationships that fit that pederastic mold, like an older woman with a younger woman. There's just, we read nothing about that. And it also says in the passage that those women were consumed with desire for one another. So there's a mutuality there as well. So it's talking about something entirely different from these inherently abusive pederastic relationships that I was speaking about. So I would say that Paul is talking about mutually consenting adult relationships um, and that is the locus of his condemnation in that passage. So, yeah. Any comments? The example of like that Roman centurion who came to Jesus asking him to heal his slave, like a lot of people reference the fact that that slave was most likely a sex slave and that Jesus was thus like affirming that relationship by healing and forgiving the sins of the centurion. But given the, the cultural context of what that slave was to his master, like would you call that an accurate comparison? We don't know what that for his master, given... Um, it could have been anything. I, it, it could have been, I, I think that's very much an argument from silence to say that the, they, they had a sexual relationship. But if that is true, then it could have been a variety of, of kinds. It, it could have been something that was inherently exploitative, or it could have been something that was mutual. Although the dynamics of the mutuality in the slave-master relationship would have been very, very tricky. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that that argument about the centurion is pretty thin, and it can't really be substantiated. But if, if it is true, there's really no way to say what their relationship would have been like. So, yeah. But, but there's no, like, Jesus wasn't explicitly approving of that in that scenario, which is an argument I see online a lot, and yeah. very few people actually try to to counter that with the rest of Jesus' teaching, and they use that one example as, yeah. as Jesus 
like affirming across all time and all cultures. Yeah. Like same sex sexual being okay in his book or like Yeah, I think that he it's important that he takes things back to Genesis and mu- multiple arguments with the Pharisees and that, that he grounds he grounds things there. And I think that's the, that is the if you want to know what Jesus teaches about sexuality you go to Genesis and see what it teaches because that's what he that's what he affirmed in his teaching specifically in his confrontations with the Pharisees okay thanks Um, thank you Philip I I just want to make a quick comment about how um, I have seen Christianity's sex ethic be liberating in my own life because I, I love hearing what you said about how it was clearly liberating for all these people um, at the time when it came about. But I also saw, like, I was someone raised, I was homeschooled, I was sheltered, I went to a Christian college, but I also was sexually active, had sex with multiple different people before I got married. Didn't really get what the sex ethic was until after I was married. And only now, looking back, seeing how enslaved I was to my need to be loved and cared for and seen, um, it was a total slavery, and it, it led to all of these sexual relation, relationships of various kinds. And um, it's just interesting, as you were talking about belonging body and soul, it's funny because, like, my husband and I, as we talk, the, the biggest sexual ethic for us is, like, Heidelberg Catechism question one. It's like, I'm not my own. I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's so liberating, like, to feel, to know my husband believes his body is not his own is liberating and it's liberating for me to believe my body is not my own um yeah so i just wanted to share that and i also wanted to ask this might this if this really throws it off don't you don't have to go down that that road but your talk about fruitfulness brought to mind something i've been thinking about a lot and the catholic church talks a lot about fruitfulness and caring for children and and that children are a blessing and there's not a lot of conversation about contraception and fruitfulness in the Protestant church. So I just wondered if you'd done any thinking about that in relation to marriage and fruitfulness. (laughs) Of course you would do (laughs) I I have. (laughs) Um, And I I do. Uh, My answer to that would be I don't think we have thought enough about that as Protestants and that it is amazing how many discussions of marriage within Protestant circles do not speak about children as the fruit of sexual union and as the, um, the way God has, has made our bodies um, and I can see reasons for doing that Children are not the sole purpose of marriage. Um, But I think what it does mean and what we have to think about is that male and female, without reference to the offspring that comes from them, is not a very biblical notion. (laughs) Um, And that we need to think more about that. So that's that's probably what I will say. And that that brings up a whole bunch of complications. What what if a marriage is childless? Um, what What about infertility? Um, and people often bring these, thi- bring these things up in the difficult situations that surround those things. I want to be really, sen- really sensitive to those. But I also want to say that those, those things, infertility, the inability to conceive, and all those things which, provide, which give so much pain to people's lives, 
um, are evidence of the fall and the way in which sin and death has gotten a stranglehold in the world that we live in. Um, and it is not how God created us to be. Um, but God did create us to be fruitful. Um, and I think that is really important. This is, this is my rector here, by the way. <laughs> so it makes me very conscious of any questions I would ask. Um, I have a couple, but I'll, I'll just ask one for now. What, I mean, Philip, the way that you, you've presented this has been very, very helpful in clarifying, um, uh, particularly for those of us who would affirm um, what, what you've presented. Uh, but when, what wisdom or insights would you have as far as sitting down with our LGBTQ brothers, sisters, family, friends, um, I mean, obviously laying this out to say, here's why this is right and this is wrong. But to, to actually be in, I, of course, I'm thinking as a pastor in relationship and, and loving people and walking alongside them through the long haul. Um, just in your, as you've done the study and then I imagine have also engaged uh, with gay and lesbian, transgendered people along the way. Can you give some guidance for conversations and relationships? Uh, uh, fall into that category of LGBTQIA plus people is that that very abbreviation categorizes people into a what many people think of as a unified coalition of people. And it obscures the fact that every person is a person. <laughs> Um, and that the experience of a lesbian person and a gay person and a transgender person is going to be entirely different. Um, and also depending on who they are, where they grew up, what their experience is, and all, all those kinds of things. And so the first thing I would, I would say is to, if you're talking with someone, do not treat them as a member of a coalition, but as a person who has, a, like you would do with anyone as a pastor. <laughs> The more, the more we categorize someone before talking to them and assume that we know all the mechanics of their story um, and that we already know the solution for them um, and how we should say it in the final five minutes of our meeting, um, that's very destructive. And I, I would encourage, if we are going to at all live by this ethic, it cannot be in a way that simply um, pushes it on people unilaterally. We need to teach it as true, because it is. But that can obscure the fact that people have experiences of sin and brokenness, both of their own doing and that has been done to them, um, in ways that because they are made in God's image, we must understand so that, that would be my main comment. And that's not, that's not necessarily helpful, I don't think, when it comes to the like, conversations. But every conversation is different. And so I think it's, it's helpful to shore up your conviction about this. But then also shore up your conviction that people are unique. And that LGBTQ plus people do not come from just a single mold. Um, and also the way that I, I wanted to promote this book actually, 
Um, this is called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing by Glenn Harrison. He's chair of psychiatry at the University of Bristol in the UK. And he has written a wonderful, accessible book that tries to build a better story about sexuality. And he does it through starting by um, dealing with the plank in our own eye as Christians, our hypocrisy around these issues, and the, the sexual shame that we have made many people feel um, because they are different. Um, and highlighting that as the way, that is the start of a better story. It is that Christians have not behaved well when it comes to treating people um, as they should. And the way, the way he summarizes it, I think, is really beautiful toward the end of this book. Um, actually, I have it. He says, um, The huge changes wrought by the sexual revolution over the past few decades have made us think long and hard about what we really believe. There's point one. We realized that we had often allowed a deficient sub-Christian view of sex to dominate our communities and shape our attitudes. This made us look harsh and judgmental, and many people felt diminished and excluded. And rather than serving the vulnerable and poor, our moral convictions were sometimes used as weapons to to beat them over the head. The sexual revolution has been a wake-up call for us. And we want to turn back from these failures. The revolution has challenged us to acknowledge and deal with the shame we feel about our sexuality. And we owe it a debt of gratitude. So there's a beginning. But then he says, as time passes by, it's becoming even more clear that the sexual revolution has failed as well. This This is at the end of his book, and it's a summary of all that he's done so far. So he's built these building blocks. Um, Far from having more and better sex, people's sex lives are as confused today as they ever have been. And then he lists some things and says, Faced with these realities, we have rediscovered our vision for sex and marriage, a vision rooted in like what I just talked to you about. As Christians today, we come in all shapes and sizes, different sexualities, and from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds. But our real story begins with our name, Christians. For us, identity isn't something we discovered within ourselves or something shaped by our ever-changing culture. It's something God has given to us. Our Christian identity is a sacred gift, etc., etc. And he describes things a bit more. And then he ends it, I think, in the appropriate place, too. He says, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. That's not our goal. While we can't stop advocating for ways of life that we believe bring flourishing... We don't want to try to impose them again because people must be free to make their own choices. Instead, regardless of circumstances or background, we want to invite anyone and everyone to join us and see this for themselves. So it's, it, it's a, it hits different notes that I think are important. And it's easy to come out kicking and screaming, especially as Christians who feel convictions about this, in the middle of that. Like, we believe this and it's true. Um, but I think right now, especially in conversations, we need to start in another place, which is in a posture of humility and realizing that mistakes have been made and damage has been done, which is why I wanted to start today the way that I did, um, because that is a barrier for many people hearing this type of stuff. Saying stuff like that won't take it all away, but it might help. So, yeah. I think she'd like to make one probably comment to this. 
Yeah, so I just wanted to speak to a little bit of that since I'm kind of fall in that category. So I kind of do. I fall in that category. Um, and I volunteer with an organization that equips um, leaders to better love LGBT people um, from this uh, position or theological conviction of the biblical sexual ethic, traditional biblical sexual ethic. Um, so if you want to talk about that later, that's awesome. But I wanted to say um, listening to people's stories is extremely powerful. Um, and yeah, and not not assuming, like you, like you were saying, because um, every story is different. And, um, and also, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> also asking questions is good. <laughs> like, I think sometimes people are afraid to ask questions because they're like, oh no, I might ask the wrong question. But no, like, ask more questions about, about people's stories. Um, People want to share their stories, and um, I think as a church body as a whole, stop emphasizing biological family and start emphasizing spiritual family, um, because it's very hard to hear all the messages of how awesome biological family is, and then say, but you can't have that, <laughs> um, or you you can if you can find someone, <laughs> but um, yeah, but I, I think Jesus' version of family is much more expansive and much more radical than anything we see at almost virtually any church today, um, and so I think that's something to consider. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to tag onto that. Um, yeah, I think it's there's such an idolatry of marriage, of sex, of marriage, and the nuclear family in the church um, that is that we don't see in the Bible in the same way. Um, and I think that it's helpful to remember that that biblically our primary relationship is is as children of God and is to Christ, and our second our second relationship is as brothers and sisters in Christ as the body, and then kind of spouses and parents and you know and and so I think that idea of like I just think how radical our churches would be if we were as focused on that relationship of being our brothers and sisters in Christ it ties in with Anna's talk earlier a bit about friendship too and kind of sacrificial friendship and the other thing I just wanted to say um, that I found helpful in my church and in working at Labrie too is just the reminder that on one side for Every single one of us, regardless of our kind of sexual status or whatever, we have a broken sexuality. Every single one of us has broken sexuality. And I think one thing that happens in the church is we spend a lot of time talking about people in the LGBT community. We talk about people having sex outside of marriage. And I think the default of that, whether this is explicitly said or not, what is implied is if you are married in a heterosexual relationship, you're all good when it comes to sexuality. You're good. Kind of whatever, you know. And and that's not true either. <laughs> and you're never lonely. And whatever you do sexually is fine. Whatever's happening there, you obviously have a super healthy sex life. And that's just not true either. And so I think we're also 
kind of by leaning really, again, whether that's explicitly said or not, when we lean heavily on one side of like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, we're also, you know, it's, it's very much creating a world of the haves and the have-nots. And, and we all live under the shadow of the fall, and for all of us, our sexuality is broken, and every single one of us needs Christ to redeem that in some way, shape, or form. Another another book is I think Anna might have talked about this spiritual friendship. It's written by Wesley Hill, finding love in the church as a celibate gay Christian, talking about friendship and community. And then finally, this is Unwanted: How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. Uh, it's by a counselor named Jay Stringer. Um, I have not read it, but Joshua, who's lecturing about these issues. Um, very much recommends it. And Dan Allender says, without rival, the best book on broken sexuality I have ever read, and I very much respect his opinion. So, yeah, check out these books. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.